This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 9th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The Endangered Species Act could be the most popular environmental legislation ever passed, but how well does it perform in maintaining and helping species emerge from endangered status? Jonathan Wood is an adjunct fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center and an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. We discussed how the Endangered Species Act ought to be changed. How does the Endangered Species Act function? in terms of actually protecting species? Uh, So um, it's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of results, but the basic approach is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or the National Marine Fisheries Service identifies species that are either endangered, meaning they're at risk of going extinct today, or threatened, meaning they may become endangered in the foreseeable future. Once a species is listed, there are several regulatory um, protections that go into place, including... Uh, that they are protected from federal actions that might destroy their habitat or jeopardize the species' survival. And um, for endangered species, there's also a provision that forbids the take of those species. Uh, take Most people hear take and probably think of things that intentionally kill or harm wildlife, but it's actually much broader than that. Essentially, any act anyone does that has some sort of effect on a species or its habitat is regulated as take. Um, So if you're harvesting timber in an area occupied by owls, if you're building homes uh, in an area under which there are caves containing rare spiders, um, you can accidentally run afoul of this take prohibition. And what what are the consequences of uh, violating that rule? Uh, So for take specifically, the punishments can go up to one year in prison and a $100,000 fine. So that's pretty serious. (laughs) Absolutely. There aren't a lot of uh, criminal prosecutions because... Uh, The government recognizes that's not the most effective way to go about it. But when they do happen, uh, the the penalties are severe. So what do you view as the the incentives that that actually creates for uh, landowners, people who are working land or people, you know, trying to draw some productive resource out of the land? What does that do for their incentives? So the... Endangered Species Act generally gets the incentives backwards. You know, if you want to protect habitat and protect wildlife, you should create some reason for property owners whose land contains uh, that wildlife or or that habitat uh, to protect it. Um, But if you impose these extremely burdensome regulations backed up by a threat of criminal enforcement on property owners, uh, the incentives will be to do the opposite, to get rid of the species and to destroy the habitat because Property owners recognize there's no upside to them of of conserving it, but there's a huge downside and that any use they have of their property could potentially be lost. Or if they try to use their property, they could trigger pretty significant uh, regulatory burdens. So what should change? You refer to uh, sort of not a a two-step test here that the Endangered Species Act does not use. Did it use a two-step test in the past? Uh, Yes. So when Congress passed the Endangered Species Act, it envisioned treating endangered species, which I said earlier, are currently a risk of extinction, and threatened species, which which aren't, differently. In In particular, the take prohibition was reserved for endangered species, those currently at risk of extinction. And Congress explained this as that is a necessary last resort uh, to prevent extinction. It's burdensome, we know, but it's worth that trade-off is worth it. But Congress never made that same judgment for threatened species. Uh, unfortunately, a, an, the federal agency in charge with implementing the statute decided to overrule Congress, passed a regulation essentially saying we're going to treat endangered and threatened species the same um, in, in whatever the, the incentive affects. And so the paper that I've written per PERC 
uh, explains that that actually undermines what should be a key incentive for recovering species. If you regulate them differently based on how close they are or how at risk they are, you align the incentives for property owners with the interests of species. So if I have an endangered species on my property and I know that if I recover it to the point that it will only be threatened, uh, that will and, – and as a consequence, this regulation will go away and I'll get my property back. That's a really strong incentive for me to do the work to try to recover the species. And right now, that incentive doesn't exist. Now, now this is an interesting debate because uh, as you note uh, in your paper that uh – the Endangered Species Act is probably the most popular piece of environmental legislation the United States has ever undertaken. You know, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, the Endangered Species Act is extremely popular, and part of that is who's against protecting species. This is something everyone can get behind. Uh, I think the point that people need to realize and that we need to soberly assess is. Is the Endangered Species Act working? In one sense, I think the answer is clearly yes. Very few species that get put on the list go extinct. But in another sense, it's coming up short. Almost as few species ultimately recover and come off the list. And I think few people should be satisfied with that outcome. Of course, it's important that we celebrate the fact that few species go extinct. That's something everyone supports. But at the same time, no one should be happy with leaving species forever on the precipice of extinction. We don't just want to keep them from falling over that cliff. We want to bring them back so that they no longer need these sorts of protections. A lot of landowners may uh, discover that there's an endangered species on their land. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking purely pragmatically here, if you're faced with having your, your land essentially frozen in terms of its productive ability and um, or, or killing animals that are on your land, you know, that might not be as difficult a choice as we would hope. Absolutely right. And some economists have studied what the incentive effects are for property owners whose land contains endangered species. And they've shown that generally people do the rational thing. If the benefits of conserving habitat are essentially zero to the property owner, but the costs are really high, they're going to make decisions that prevent that land from being habitat for species. Uh, so for instance, there are quite a few studies showing that uh, people who own timber lands will cut their timber early if allowing it to grow more mature will make it suitable habitat for, for rare birds. They'd rather sacrifice the income from having bigger trees in order to avoid the consequences of the birds coming in and regulations falling on them. So how do we uh, get to the point where you know, landowners are either encouraged or, you know, these people who are in, in the West, at least, vast landowners, they have an interest in maintaining the, the value of lands. Many of them are conservationists themselves. But I, I can't imagine a, a landowner with a stream running through his property wanting to put uh, to stock his streams with an endangered fish. Uh, that's right. And often federal regulations make it harder for people to do that even if they want to. I go through a couple of examples in the paper uh, where people were motivated to try to recover species and develop projects to, to improve habitat. And because take is defined so broadly, they actually were frustrated in those efforts because they needed to get a federal permit. 
Um, but I think really the only long-term solution to this problem of recovering species is to find ways to increase flexibility so that states and conservation groups can go to property owners and say, we want to work with you. Let's find a way to protect habitat, to protect these species while also allowing you to get uh, the value out of your land that, that you're looking for. Uh, the decades of experience we have with conflict-driven conservation has only resulted in lots of conflict and very little conservation. And returning to the Endangered Species Act two-step approach where threatened species are regulated differently can be an effective way to create that flexibility. Uh, states and conservation uh, groups can look at a listing as threatened as an opportunity to say, hey, landowner, if we don't do something now, this is going to become endangered and you're going to face really significant regulatory burdens. Let's not let that happen. Let's find a way now to work together so that species never become endangered in the first place and we start to finally recover this important wildlife. So you wrote this paper for PERC, but full-time you're an attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation uh, working on environmental stuff. Um, so what is the what does it look like, the landscape for environmental litigation right now on behalf of endangered species? Uh, well, uh, so there is always work to be done on the litigation front. Uh, one of the you know, worst aspects of most of our modern environmental laws is that they encourage litigation rather than conservation. Um, most groups find that it's extremely profitable to sue the government on environmental issues, regardless of whether you achieve any environmental end. Don't can't, don't they also get paid in some cases for engaging in that kind of litigation? That's exactly right. The government will actually pay your attorney's fees for suing you, and often those attorney's fees will be far higher than the costs you incurred. To, to sue it. Uh, so, for instance, if you're a nonprofit group, you're not paying your attorneys all that much. But when you go to charge the government attorney's fees, you're going to use the market rate for the highest paid attorneys. So there are many groups that profit immensely uh, from litigation against the federal government, which just takes away resources that the government and these private groups could be better putting towards pursuing on-the-ground conservation. Jonathan Wood is author of The Road to Recovery for the Property and Environment Research Center. He's also an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.